Welcome to The Road to Now, where we look to the past and everywhere in between to understand the present. I'm Bob Crawford. As always, I'm joined by, well, at least for one more episode, I'm joined by Dr. Ben Sawyer. <laughs> because this is, this is the season of revolutions here at The Road to Now, so who knows? Ben and I could be overthrown tomorrow by oh, Ian no. and Megan. <laughs> it's quite possible. It's a true social revolution. Yeah. So uh, yeah. if you don't want that to happen, let us know on social media. Uh, tweet at Ian and let him know, uh, no, we like the current monarchs and we feel as if they are benevolent despots. So Ben, wait, wait, real quick here. You spoke about the French Revolution this week. That is right. Uh, we had the privilege of speaking with Dr. Peter McPhee. He is one of the most established historians on the French Revolution. He is at the University of Melbourne in Australia. I love it whenever we get to speak to people who are as personable as they are outstanding as a scholar. And Peter had so much great input. He helped us tie the importance of religion to the French Revolution, spoke about the importance of the United States relationship with France, and how the French Revolution, this amazing moment that, that in some people see as the evolution of the principles of the American Revolution that then devolves into great terrors and the guillotine and the rise of Napoleon. And we even got a nice discussion about the Marquis de Lafayette and who I have to admit, I know I'm not supposed to be biased as a historian. Marquis de Lafayette's one of my favorite figures in all of history. Well, hey, well then, then I'm just going to grab some popcorn and sit back and listen to this great interview you did about the French Revolution. Dolph Ramser began his record label in his hometown of Concord, North Carolina, where he continues the tradition of delivering new and inspiring music to audiences worldwide. Nowhere else can you get the albums from Jim Avitt, David Childers, Josh White, and Sammy Walker. Visit ramserrecords.kungfustore.com and use the promo code HISTORY at checkout. All right, Peter McPhee, you are with us today, joining us from literally the other side of the planet. So thank you so much for being here with us. It's a great pleasure. Well, we wanted to start off because we're doing a series on revolutions. And this year, there are a lot of anniversaries. Uh, we've got the 500-year anniversary of, the, of Martin Luther's 95 Theses, the 100-year anniversary of the Russian Revolution, the 100-year anniversary of the Mexican Constitution. However, there is one that, despite not having a perfectly significant anniversary, is nevertheless huge and looms large in a lot of the other revolutions we're talking about. This is the French Revolution. Could you just begin by explaining the background to the French Revolution and then maybe giving us just a nutshell overview of how that plays out. How do we get from the revolution of 1789, say, to Napoleon? Well, as with all revolutions, people are divided about whether you look for very long-term causes or quite short-term triggers. Certainly, uh, 18th century France was a society where there were all sorts of pressures building up, uh, intellectual pressures. This is the age of enlightenment, obviously and the uh, experience of the American Revolution, the American Declaration of Independence, uh, loomed very large in the consciousness of uh, thinkers across Europe, and particularly in, in France. People talked about the Republic of Letters. It's also a society which is based on uh, endemic inequality, on uh, corporate privilege belonging to the Catholic Church and to the nobility, 
uh, it's a society based on, in theory, the absolute power of the, the monarch. So even though 18th century France is, uh, it seems to be an extraordinarily powerful, durable regime, uh, in fact, there are all sorts of very significant tensions and shifts uh, going on. In the end, um, we can only understand the, the French Revolution by looking at a an, um, quite an immediate financial taxation crisis, which is triggered by France's involvement in the American War of Independence. So you have this, this regime that is in a financial crisis. The United States was having a revolution against monarchy, but they were happy to borrow money from one of the longest standing monarchies in the world. What forces are at work in bringing that regime down? The so social forces, I would say. One of the very important ones that this financial crisis brings to a head is the tension between the monarchy which is committed to reform, which needs to solve its own financial crisis, uh, wants to break the taxation privileges of the nobility in particular. Uh, and so you have, you have a standoff at the top among the elite of French society between the most powerful nobles and the monarchy about the ongoing privileges of the nobility. But uh, underneath that, uh, there is an increasingly uh, numerous, confident, successful um, middle-class group in society who call themselves the bourgeoisie, many of whom are doing very well out of the uh, colonial trade across the Atlantic in the Caribbean, um, where the, 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 the plantation-based economies, the slave economies of uh, Saint-Domingue, later Haiti, um, are very important to the French economy. And alongside that, you've got this sort of festering discontent among millions of peasants about the levels of feudal dues that they're having to pay. So there are all sorts of social tensions that really this financial crisis in 1789 brings to a head. Uh, so there, there are uh, different forces at work here. So you have a middle class, a bourgeoisie that has its own interests. It, it is not, its, its interests are not built upon blood or title. It's built upon financial wealth. You have peasants who are in the countryside who are clearly so often in history, the ones who pay the taxes when the people in power rack them up, rack up the debt, it's the it's the working class. It sounds very familiar. Yeah. As you pointed out, there is this relationship between the United States and France early on. And in fact, the this this major declaration here that, that, that really that really is notable in the beginning, the declaration of the rights of man and of the citizen. This is written partially by Marquis de Lafayette, who is under the influence of Thomas Jefferson. So why is it that, that you end up in France with a fundamentally different revolution than you end up in the, in the United States when you start with such a common note? Oh, I think, well, there are a number of reasons. I mean, one is that even though there are very, very important similarities between the American Declaration of Independence and the French Declaration of the Rights of Man in um, August 1789, the French Declaration is much more sweeping uh, it, it's it, it's in it's cast in universal tones. Uh, it's it's much more open to uh, radical interpretation. But we also need to remember that, um, as you pointed out, one of the great drivers of the French Revolution is peasant revolt, uh, and you have a feudal system which really doesn't exist in the in in the American colonies. So I think that one of the one of the key differences between France and the United States is that. In France, the French Revolution is always a social upheaval from day one, as well as a, as well as a movement for political constitutional reform. 
Right. And there is, I think it is always interesting to parallel what is in the United States, very much a political revolution. The political structure changes, right? You, but you end up with the same people who were at the top of colonial society. Patrick Henry, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson. These guys were doing great before. In the French Revolution, you not only get rid of a monarchy, you get rid of the monarch themselves. What leads to this violence? Why, why do you see... I mean, I once was told by one of my old advisors who we're going to have on soon, uh, Jeff, Jeff Bortz, who studies the Mexican Revolution. And he said... The thing about peasants is they don't want to start a new government once they get rid of the old one. They just want to be left alone. Do you see this in the French Revolution? The, um, the new United States of America has a, has a huge advantage of geography, and that is uh, once the British are expelled from North America and uh, by 1783, the whole of the North American continent is opened up to settlement by, by the colonists. Uh, you could argue, you could argue that the big losers of the American Revolution are, are Native Americans. I would argue that because the continent is open, and it's a, if you like, it's a safety valve. I mean, in France, if you're going to do anything about uh, about social and economic opportunity, you've got to do it within a bounded nation. So you have to deal with uh, structures of inequality. You can't. <laughs> it's not like the United States where you can say, "Just go west. <laughs> There's plenty of land." But the other thing, the other great advantage for the United States, of course, is that the new United States of America is not surrounded by hostile powers. Uh, the problem for the, the French revolutionaries is that the, the monarchies around France, who are uh, related to Louis XVI by blood, are profoundly bothered by what they see as the possibility of a revolutionary contagion. And that's why from very early on in the revolution, there is this, and this, the same is true of Russia in 1917, there is this tension between the revolutionary state and its neighbors. Aha, and this has to do with who is our enemy and who is our friend? That's right, and and we're talking about a, an old Europe which is based on, on monarchy, which is based on feudalism, which is based on privilege and so on. Uh, the assumption that French revolutionaries are making when they issue their declaration is that the rights they're proclaiming are universal. It is only a matter of time before everybody else in Europe uh, adopts these principles. It's self-evident they're the rights of man. Uh, consequently, you have the ruling elites in these other countries who are profoundly nervous and start making angry uh, menaces uh, about the French Revolution. The Pope very early on, for example, uh, simply condemns the French Revolution and the Declaration as heresy, that it, this is anathema to, uh, to church teaching. Uh, he, he condemns the revolution and all its works. Of course, because the the idea that all men are created equal and that the right to be ruled comes from those who are ruled, that in in a way we don't see now that is a declaration that God Himself created rights, but did not particularly tag one person to be better than the other. One of the most explosive um, clauses of the Declaration of the Rights of Man in France is that no person will be troubled for their opinions, even religious. Uh, as long as they respect the bounds of the law. In other words, they're saying very deliberately, from now on, it doesn't matter wh whether you're a Catholic, a Protestant, a Muslim, or a Jew, uh, That's you are equal in the eyes of the law, you have equal rights to public worship. Uh, and that's explosive because we're talking about uh, the oldest sister of the, of the Catholic Church in the Vatican, where uh, the Catholic Church alone has had the right to, to worship in public. And now this French Revolution is saying, no, this is a right that all people share. 
And that's it's an explosive uh, element of the Declaration of Rights. We spoke in the Martin Luther episode a bit about the peasant uprisings in the 15th century. Those are highly related to what turns out to be a pretty bad strategy of the Catholic Church by teaching the peasants that the meek shall inherit the earth. So when things tend to go bad, they say, well, it can't be us because you couldn't get much meeker than we are. So it must be you that's causing God to punish us. How does the teaching of the Catholic Church itself inspire a worldview that might be prone to revolution? The religious question is at the heart of the French Revolution. Uh, There are certainly many people who see the revolution uh, as, in some sense, God's work. You know, at at the start of the revolution, there are many ordinary parish priests who are very supportive of notions of equality that they say they should be applied within the Catholic Church itself. You know, why do you need to be a noble to become a bishop? Uh, Shouldn't it simply be a question of of your ability? Uh, But once the revolution starts to make uh, quite radical changes to the church and to introduce the notion of religious equality between different faiths, that's when the big split emerges and devout Catholics uh, tend to react against the revolution, which they see as having gone too far. But the religious question is really at the, at the heart of all of this. Aha, because, because this ideology, from some perspectives, is a liberating ideology, and on the other hand, it's very much a threat to the established power inside the church. Well, you know, one of the, one of the most explosive and difficult elements of this is that the revolutionaries say, look, from now on, parish priests should be chosen by the people in the same way that we choose the mayor or any public official. Of course, that's anathema to a church which sees authority descending from God through the Pope and the cardinals and the archbishops and so on, which is based on the principle of of divinely inspired hierarchical appointment. Here you've got a revolution saying, no, 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 all authority comes from below, from the people. So you've got a fundamentally different attitude to the source of authority. And that's why when when the revolutionaries say to parish priests, Uh, From now on, you're going to be elected and you're going to take an oath of loyalty to the nation, the law and the king. Uh, The Pope says, no, no, no. The only oath a parish priest should ever take is to God uh, and is to obedience to the Pope as God's emissary. So there's a fundamental cleavage there. What I always teach in my classes when I teach the U.S. history about the Enlightenment, if you see the world through that Enlightenment view and not through the older, you know, church taught view that that all power flows through the church, you know, from God through the church. Well, if you start to believe that all people are created equal, then that means the king is in God's eyes on the same level as you. And to rebel against the king in the Enlightenment view, that's no longer to rebel against God. That's right. So uh, when Louis the Sixteenth is finally put on trial uh, for treason during the, the the wars with the rest of of Europe. Uh, there are some people who say, but look, the king is uh, almost a sacred being. But the critical argument of revolutionaries is, no, is the king a a person or isn't he? Is the king a citizen or isn't he? Uh, And in the end, they say uh, the punishment for treason, according to the law, uh, is death. If the king is a person and he's guilty of treason, he must die like anybody else. You know, we can't make an exception just because he used to think of himself or be thought of as in some sense appointed by God. 
how does that influence? Because this is a, a period where you get this reign of terror, and the, the guillotine becomes becomes the 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 choice of the day. How do how do you get there? What is it that inspires the terror? Because you know, there's this old argument of Edmund Burke's in, in, in England looking over saying, well, this is necessarily, no matter what, this is going to be violent. That's the way this ideology works. The reign of terror to him was just a, was just a, one plus one equals two. Other people have said, no, this was a digression from the revolution. Other people have said it was the, the logical outcome. Where do you see the violence coming from and how is it, what is its relationship to the ideology of the revolution? That's always been the most difficult question about the French revolution that, here we have a revolution that began in 1789 with the most inspiring statement of rights in the Declaration of the Rights of Man, and which uh, within four years is suspending many of those rights uh, in ways that you know we you know we often find uh, just intolerable. I think there's no doubt that the the root cause of the violence of the French Revolution is the war that breaks out in 1792, and which uh, for for most of the next year uh, goes very badly for the French uh, revolutionary armies. Uh, that's why Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette are put on trial for treason because they believe they're leaking secrets to the enemy. But really the, the root cause of what, we, what comes to be called the terror is that the government effectively says the only way uh, through this military crisis where France is being overrun by foreign armies um, the only way through it is to have a government with emergency draconian powers to do whatever it takes. Uh, and if necessary, public safety has to take pre- precedence over individual liberties. So this is, a, this is an emergency regime which suspends constitutional government, which suspends uh, individual rights. But the people in the government who introduced these measures are absolutely clear this is this is until we win the war, which they finally do in the middle of 1794, uh, uh, which is the end of that period of uh, repressive emergency government. But of course, in the meantime, thousands of people have been sent to the guillotine, uh, not only because they've taken up arms against the revolution, but often for their opinions. Uh, and all sorts of people have suffered in all sorts of ways through imprisonment or, or whatever. So it's a traumatic period of the French Revolution. Uh, is the price of military victory by the middle of 1794, is the price that has to be paid, the incarceration and death of many people, uh, or could that have been avoided? That is the single most difficult question about the French Revolution. You say there's a war going on in 1792 to 1794. What is that war about? Well, that's the war that uh, breaks out between uh, revolutionary France and its neighbours, Uh, And I think it's fundamentally because of the threat that the revolution represents to the European order that that war breaks out. I think there are deep, latent tensions between revolutionary France and its neighbours. Once Louis XVI is put on trial and executed at the start of 1793, effectively the whole of Europe enters the the war against France. And within a few months, uh, France is being overrun by Austrian, Prussian and Spanish troops. There's an English naval blockade. Uh, so that even supplies from the United States, which by then is really France's only ally, those supplies from the United States can't get through. France is under siege. People are saying uh, the revolution will be overrun within weeks by these foreign troops uh, who will slaughter all of us. Uh, so that's why this uh, you know, democratically elected national convention or parliament effectively decides we're going to have to put emergency powers in the hands of this committee of public safety, uh, a committee of 12 people, 
including the famous Robespierre, uh, and they've got to be given they've got to be given uh, pretty well a blank check to do what it takes to win the to win this war. They're required to come back to the parliament every month to issue a report on what they're doing, on how successful they're being, but their mandate is extended month after month. Uh, they're finally victorious, but as, as I say, at enormous cost. So this is always the interesting thing about revolutions. We look at it and we go, the reign of terror, everyone was being beheaded, it was madness. And what you're saying is if you look at it from a dispassionate perspective, what you might actually see in the reign of terror is a successful strategy? Yes, it, the, the single most important thing about the terror is that it, it succeeds in defending the revolution, defending France itself. That's the single most important thing. But the cost is huge, uh, but we shouldn't exaggerate. I mean, the, the stories that we have that, you know, blood's running through the streets, let's not exaggerate too much. Uh, the, the violence is, is uh, terrible or something like 30,000 people who are put on trial and executed. About three quarters of those people are, are uh, executed, by the way, because they've taken up arms against the revolution. I mean, they've, they're collaborating, collaborating with the enemy, but there are still a lot of people who um, are put on trial, who are detained or even executed because they've opposed the government by word of mouth, by what they've written. We shouldn't exaggerate the, the level of the killing. It's nothing like some of the worst excesses we see in the modern world. It is always fascinating because you know, the moral compass of most of the Western world is that purges like these are terrible. If you just go at it like that, you miss that there's a logic to these things. I remember seeing an interview, uh, I think Johann Helbeck did this with one of, the, one of Stalin's officers, and this was recent. Uh, he's a very old man. When they talk, spoke to him about the terror in the Soviet Union in the 1930s, he said, well, Stalin said that there were enemies all around us. And you know what happened? Stalin went away. And when Stalin went away, we stopped purging enemies and looked what happened to the Soviet Union. We should remember that all successful revolutions uh, only succeed because they uh, succeed militarily in the end. I mean, if you look at the American War of Independence, uh, you know, that's no, that's no Sunday school picnic. <laughs> you know, that is a very violent um, anti-colonial rebellion. There are huge numbers of people who have to flee, who lose their property, who lose their lives. Um, but they win. The American colonists win. All successful revolutions, if you look at the great revolutions uh, in human history, uh, have had to succeed through, in the end, through force of arms. And all of them have had, have had episodes of terror of one kind or another, of, of horror, uh, of, of people losing their lives who in normal times wouldn't. Um, I mean, that's one of the salient facts that we have to face up to when we talk about when we talk about revolution. Major revolutions are not peaceful events. I always say George Washington's a great guy to start with because he's the only figure in modern revolutionary history that just steps down. Uh, a lot of the other revolutions end in people like Napoleon or Stalin or Castro. It's a good start, but let's not forget that by the end of 1776, Washington's already writing back to Congress saying, I can't control my men. They are looting houses. They are taking property. They're burning people's houses down. It, it, there's a lot of terror there as well. But you're absolutely right. I mean, a, a critical point in American history is uh, during uh, Washington's second term as president when he says, you know, he's under pressure. He's under pressure to stay on. And people are openly talking about uh, the idea of an American monarchy in which he'd be the first king. And when he says quite deliberately, no, I've, I've done my constitutional terms, that's it. As you say, that's a really significant political moment in, in American history. What would have happened in France had Robespierre and his allies not been overthrown? We just don't know. 
So how do we go from this period when Robespierre is finally executed in the summer of 1794 and when Napoleon really rises up? Oh, it's uh, it's a very difficult period. It's a period on the one hand of reaction against uh, the radical uh, period of the, of the terror. It's certainly a five-year period before Napoleon takes over of Republican government, a very conservative Republican government. The problem they have is that uh, France is so divided between... Um, people who uh, are committed to a radical revolution, uh, people who are called Jacobins and sans-culottes, uh, and people on the, at the other extreme who are royalists, who are, who are if, if anything, wanting to overthrow the revolution. So you have a very unstable political regime which is trying to walk a narrow line between left and right, until finally in 1799, at a time of great instability, Napoleon and his supporters seize power. Uh, and there, what, what, what Napoleon says that he wants to do is to consolidate the revolutionaries' gains, but to suppress disorder. You know, he wants order, he wants stability, but he wants to guarantee the key things about the revolution. And in many ways, he succeeds in doing that. Um, you know, he, he uh, manages to, to bring together all of those things which are durable about the French Revolution, all of the reforms that he approves of. At the same time, he... Uh, it's an authoritarian regime which, as much as possible, uh, suppresses uh, dissent. And one of the interesting things about the French Revolution, and, the, and it being this attempt to topple the old order, is that it fundamentally changes not only the way that people imagine their relationship to government, it changes the way they imagine their relationship to time, to nature, could you talk about these attempts to, to rework not just the politics, but the entire lived experience of, of French citizens? Before the revolution, uh, people in France um, spoke a, a multitude of, uh, of different languages. They were different ethnicities. They had different ways of, uh, of measuring things. They had different currencies. The French Revolution, in, in many ways, uh, as part of the nationalism that it generates, uh, generates an idea that not only should all French citizens be equal before the law, but the ways in which they were governed and administered, uh, their mental universe, if you like, should be uniform as well. That's what the word fraternity was supposed to mean. So one of the most uh, radical and understudied aspects of the French Revolution is that it's decided to introduce uh, a decimal set of, of measures in France. So that when people in Europe or in most of the world today uh, talk about kilometres or kilograms or metres or decimal currency, that comes from the French Revolution, uh, and it's this idea that it should be that it should be logical, rational, and uniform. They even get to the point, such as the hostility towards the Catholic Church, that in 1793 they introduce a decimal calendar. Uh, they introduce a, a new way of telling time, so that uh, the French Revolution represents the beginning of a new era of human history. Uh, the first year of the Republic is the year one, and all of the uh, all of the saints' names for each of the days in the Gregorian or Christian calendar are dispensed with and replaced by names that are drawn from nature or from the virtues or from heroes. People start calling their children by different names. There are, there are one of the most common names that people give their children if they're good revolutionaries. Uh, during the, the radical period of the terror, are names from the American Revolution. You get small children in France who are being called George Washington or Benjamin Franklin. So they're named after 
children are sometimes named after heroes or the virtues like like courage uh, or or after plants drawn from nature but there is a there's an attempt in other words to to recreate the symbolic world around you by renaming things and that's one of the most radical breaks of the past that the french revolution attempts we tend to read the present into the past and we tend to think well people always fought for nation they fought for their loyalty they fought for citizenship but that is something that really comes out of this era of enlightenment and when we talk about nationalism um, you know the united states we don't have that for a long time it's really only after the war of 1812 that people even begin thinking of themselves as americans and not virginians or or uh, pennsylvanians so can you talk about the the concept of the nation and how the French Revolution shapes this basic concept around which most of us imagine ourselves. It's around this time in Western history that we need we can, we can find the origins of, of what we call nationalism and patriotism. There's a wonderful book by um, a great scholar of Asia called Benedict Anderson called Imagined Communities, uh, which is written in the 1980s, where he argues that the essence of nationalism is that people who uh, will never meet each other and very often speak a different language, still come to understand themselves as linked in uh, an imaginative community to those people, uh, as French, as Australians, as Americans or, or whatever. Now, I think the French Revolution is fundamentally important in this process because all of the reforms of the revolution are, are based on the assumption that all citizens of this new nation of the former kingdom but the nation of france should have the same rights and responsibilities there should be one set of institutions of laws uh, of regulations of rights that pertains to everybody regardless of where you live and what your social background is now when that is contested during the revolutionary wars after 1792 by foreign powers trying to overthrow those reforms it actually embeds this idea that what is at stake here is the nation, that the nation as a whole is is under siege. Um, I've spent quite a bit of time studying um, ethnic and linguistic minorities in France, and it really is quite extraordinary the way in which people who in daily life would have spoken Breton or Catalan come to define themselves as a result of this period as French as well. You know, they certainly continue to speak Catalan or Breton, but they start to define themselves as French citizens. Uh, and they start making assumptions about uh, having the same rights, the same mental universe as other citizens right across the country. And that's, I think, the, the seedbed of, uh, of modern nationalism. I should add that spirit of fraternity also transcends the Atlantic Ocean to some recent rebels in Haiti, such as Levanture. And they themselves see themselves as brothers of the French Revolution, but the French don't necessarily see these folks as as their brothers. Well, you, you can imagine how explosive a statement uh, is in the Declaration of the Rights of Man in 1789 that says people are born free and equal. Uh, that the, Among the basic rights of all people is freedom, is liberty. Uh, and there's a colossal debate in 1790 as to whether this uh, applies to the half million slaves in the French Caribbean. Uh, there are many people in in the in Parliament, such as uh, Robespierre, who say, "Well, of course it does. Are they not human beings?" There are many other people, the majority at that time, who say, "Well, yes, of course, but it would be very bad for the economy. 
Uh, these people don't know how to be free. After all, it was, uh, it was their African masters who sold them into slavery. Let's not rush things. But what happens uh, and eventually in 1791 is that slaves themselves rebel. Uh, and in 1794, during the terror, it's decided that slaves will have their freedom. I mean, there's a, an emancipation decree. The hope uh, that the French government has is that uh, emancipated slaves will fight on the side of France, which they do. Uh, so it's a really significant moment in the French Revolution in 1794 when slavery is abolished in the French colonies. Napoleon, by the way, in 1802, tries to reinstate it. He, he invades uh, Saint-Domingue, the main French colony, uh, and it's only after two years of violent um, resistance by the former slaves that he backs off and the nation of Haiti is, is born. But you know, slavery is one of the most contentious issues of the French Revolution, but it's very significant that in the end, slavery is abolished. It is. We have a, a similar problem here, too, where we stated that all men are created equal and then had to explain that there were a lot of qualifications on that. The French Revolution has so many, so many long-term effects upon the world, the metric system, uh, the sense of, of nationhood. I think it's, it's one of these revolutions that as Americans, I think we learn about it. I have to speak about it when I teach U.S. history surveys because you can't understand the politics of the United States in the 1790s if you don't understand Jefferson's enthusiasm and Adams' absolute fear of the French Revolution as shaping policy. So I think it would be uh, unfair to our listeners, many of which uh, are probably love the musical Hamilton as much as I do, in all of history. And, you know, I'm not supposed to do this because I'm supposed to be an objective scholar. But I have to say, one of my favorite figures in all of history is the Marquis de Lafayette. Uh, his, I love his, his enthusiasm. I love the fact that he's one of the only people that will directly say to George Washington, you are a hypocrite, that you own slaves, you are a leader, you need to stop this. I love that he goes and purchases plantations in the Caribbean and frees the slaves there. He's so many amazing stories. Uh, but a lot of people don't actually realize that the Marquis de Lafayette, despite being a central figure in the early revolution, actually had a pretty dark path during the revolution and thereafter. Could you could you tell the story of Lafayette's role in the revolution and then what happens to him between that and his triumphant return to the United States in the 1820s? Oh, Lafayette is, a, as you say, a crucial figure uh, at the outset of the revolution because he's regarded as a hero because of his involvement in the American War of Independence. He has a huge amount of regard because he's one of he comes from one of the most powerful, wealthy, noble families in the kingdom and yet uh, makes it very plain that he thinks France is in need of quite drastic reform. But fundamentally, Lafayette uh, believes in constitutional monarchy. So he supports the early revolution, which turns Louis XVI into a constitutional king, working with an assembly, working with a constitution. In 1792, once war breaks out and um, the, the voices of radicalism start to become stronger, uh, republicanism starts to emerge, Lafayette makes it plain that he wants to stop the revolution, that he thinks it's becoming too radical, going too far. And in 1792, he effectively breaks with the revolution and goes into exile which is the start of a, of a, a long and miserable period of, uh, of exile. He's a supporter of Louis XVI, and uh, he simply regards the revolution as having gone too far, that it's now in the hands of, uh, of people who he sees as dangerous radicals. Uh, of course, Lafayette does have a triumphant return, and indeed in, in 1830, when France has another revolution, 
Lafayette re-emerges and almost gives his blessing to this new uh, new constitutional monarchy that, that forms in 1830. But um, yes, he's a key player, uh, and it's only in 1792 that he really finds himself in a situation where he says, as far as I'm concerned, the revolution has gone too far in the direction of democracy and equality. It's becoming, becoming dangerous. Uh, the king himself is under threat. That's when he decides that he's had enough and flees from the revolution. And he's in prison, correct? He's eventually put in prison in Prussia, is that correct? That's right, yep. He, because he's regarded with suspicion there, because after all, he is a revolutionary. Uh, so he is re- initially regarded with suspicion. Finally, I want to end with this. We always ask the question, because you have a prolific career. Obviously, we wanted a scholar on the French Revolution, and we literally went to the other side of the globe. And thank you for working out these time zones with us. You grew up in Australia. What led you to to pursue uh, the life of a historian, and particularly what, what sparked your interest in the French Revolution? I'd always really enjoyed history at school. It was my favorite subject. But I'd all also been encouraged by my mother, uh, to keep up, a, um, to keep studying French, and I found when I came to university and was doing history that that when I studied the French Revolution, uh, that I could make sense of some of the original documents. Uh, there was a very famous book, which was the first book uh, on the French Revolution that really excited me, a book by an historian named George Ruday called *The Crowd and the French Revolution*, which was really the first attempt to understand popular action in the French Revolution from the point of view of the crowd. Of the, of the revolutionary crowd. And Rude in that book left his uh, original quotations in French. And whereas a lot of my fellow students found it very frustrating because they couldn't understand what the, the quotations were, I could read them. And I, I, I think that that was one of the reasons that I felt a particular interest in the French Revolution that I felt by being able to read those uh, documents in the original, that as somehow I was closer to, uh, to understanding what people were, were really saying. But then, of course, realising the extraordinary complexity and importance of this upheaval and its repercussions uh, really across Europe and even across the globe, I just couldn't get, I, I, I couldn't walk away from it. And I've remained a student of uh, the French Revolution ever since, really. That is brilliant. And to all the young scholars out there and to the parents of young scholars, this just drives home one of the points that I tell all of my students. Learn another language. Yep, I agree. Well, Dr. Peter McPhee, thank you so much for your time. I have been chomping at the bit to talk to you because the French Revolution has been on my mind lately, and thank you so much for your time. Yes. Thank you for listening to The Road to Now, episode number 78, The History of the French Revolution with Dr. Peter McPhee. The Road to Now is hosted by Bob Crawford and Dr. Benjamin Sawyer and produced by Bob Crawford, Ben Sawyer, and Ian Scotta. Our associate editor is Megan Summers. Today's music is by Paul DeFiglia. We'd like to say a special thanks to our supporters on Patreon and a special shout-out to our Washingtonians, Eric King, Tanya Marsh, Mary Hawking, Paul Ayler, Tim and Caitlin Wells, Christopher Willis, Peggy Donica, Fig White, and Jeff Lacane. You guys are amazing. Thank you for the support. We just launched a new episode on Patreon that is exclusive to Patreon, so if you could, go over there and check it out. Uh, We've got some extra content there for you. If you like what you're hearing, please take a minute and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get the road to now. It only takes a second and does a lot to help us spread the word. For Bob Crawford, this is Dr. Benjamin Sawyer. Take care.